Welcome to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of me, Rick Lee James. I'm a recording artist, a singer, songwriter, an author, a worship leader, and an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene. The Voices in My Head podcast is your source for discussions on music, literature, movies, pop culture, theology, and more. Now sit back, relax, and listen to the latest episode of the Voices in My Head podcast. And don't forget to let the voices in your head be heard by following me on Twitter at Rick Lee James and sharing your thoughts about today's show. Welcome back to Voices in My Head. I am your host, Rick Lee James, as always, and I am here coming to you from my office at First Church of the Nazarene in Springfield, Ohio. Very glad you could be with me today. Today is going to be an interesting episode, I think. I hope it will be interesting for you. I find it to be fascinating and something that I've wanted to get more into for a while now, but just haven't had a chance. And I've asked a few of you on Facebook and other social media outlets if this would be a topic that would be interesting to you. And uh, I think it is. I think a lot of people are are interested in hearing more about the sermons of Karl Barth. And so this was actually an idea that came to me after reading through some of Barth's sermons. Uh, Barth, by the way, spelled B-A-R-T-H, not like Bart Simpson, but it's pronounced that way. Uh, Karl, K-A-R-L-B-A-R-T-H. If you've never heard of Karl Barth, then I think you're going to find uh, these episodes episodes particularly interesting. I don't know that I'm going to do this as a weekly thing. I'm going to try to do it as I can and space it out. We do have some guests coming up in the future shows very soon. Uh, In just a couple weeks, I will be in Kansas City for the National Worship Leaders Convention, and I'm hoping to get a few good podcast interviews while I'm there. Uh, And the week after that, I will be in uh, Cincinnati once again with our friend Walter Brueggemann and we're going to be discussing some various different things about the Bible about the present world situation and his new commentary uh, so in the midst of that in, in times I'm in filling some space I wanted to do something that was hopefully worthy of our time so I thought I wanted to cover Karl Barth for a while and what better way than to maybe use some of his sermons uh, this book that I'm going to be reading Uh, today's sermon from comes from the early preaching of Karl Barth. There are 14 sermons in the book, and I'm not going to read 14 of them. I'm going to read one today. And there's a commentary that goes along with this book by William H. Willimon, who, as many of you listeners I'm sure know, I am a huge fan of of Bishop Willimon in the Methodist Church. There's a lot for us in Karl Barth, and these early sermons, uh, which are uh, really dating, I think, from about 1919 um, through about 1921. I'll have to double-check before I uh, say specifically, but I can do that because I've got the book right in front of me. But I wanted to give a little bit of of comment upon... um, uh, upon these sermons. Actually, this sermon today uh, comes from March 4th, 1917, almost 100 years ago. Uh, so we're coming up on the 100-year anniversary of this sermon. I want to give you a little background as to who Karl Barth was, some of the situation that he lived in, and then we'll get into this sermon. I feel like today's sermon in particular um, is a lot different than some of Bart's later sermons. It's one of his early sermons as a pastor here in 1917 um, to his small little Swiss congregation where he was at. It's a difficult sermon, but I think it's difficult today and maybe as difficult to hear today as it was then. 
But first, let me start with some background from Carl Bart. Uh, Carl Bart was born on May 10th, 1886. He was a Swiss Reformed theologian who is often regarded as the greatest Protestant theologian of the 20th century. Pope Pius VII called him the most important Christian theologian since St. Thomas Aquinas. So think of that recommendation, that endorsement. That's a pretty huge one. Um, His influence expanded well beyond the academic realm to mainstream culture, leading him to be featured on the cover of Time in April 20th of 1962. Beginning with his experience as a pastor, Bart rejected his training in the predominant liberal theology typical of 19th century European Protestantism. He also rejected more conservative forms of Christianity, and instead he embarked on a new theological path. Initially called a dialectical theology due to its stress on the paradoxical nature of divine truth, God's relationship to humanity embodies both grace and judgment. Many critics have referred to Bart as the father of neo-orthodoxy, a term that Bart emphatically rejected. A more charitable description of his work might be a theology of the word. Bart's work had a profound impact on the 20th century theology, and it figures uh, such as figures such as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, like Bart, became a leader in the Confessing Church. Um, and there were novelists such as uh, John Updike and and Miklos. Um, Senkuthi, I never can pronounce his name well, sorry, Um, but other people in the Confessing Church, people you may have heard of, um, I'm sure you've heard of Reinhold Niebuhr, Stanley Hauerwas, but Bart's unease with the dominant theology which characterized Europe led him to become a leader in the Confessing Church in Germany, and it actively opposed Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime. And in particular, Bart and other members of the movement vigorously attempted to prevent the Nazis from taking over the existing church and establishing a state church controlled by the regime. This culminated in Bart's authorship of the Barman Declaration, which fiercely criticized Christians who supported the Nazis. So he was one of the most prolific and influential theologians of the 20th century. He emphasized the sovereignty of God, uh, particularly through his reinterpretation of the Calvinistic doctrine of election, the sinfulness of humanity, and the um, infinite uh, qualitative distinction between God and mankind. His most famous works are the Epistle to the Romans, which marked a clear break from his earlier thinking, and his massive 13-volume work, Church Dogmatics, one of the largest works of systematic theology ever written. Uh, So that's Bart, sort of in a nutshell. Uh, Thank you, Wikipedia, for much of that information that I uh, took today as we begin uh, this time. He died in uh, in 1968, December 10th, at age 82 in Basel, Switzerland. Um, And so let's get into some of his uh, sermon making today. This particular sermon I, I find to be incredibly relevant. For today, now you have to remember that World War One, uh, one of the bloodiest wars in all of history, uh, was coming to an end. It was being waged, and while Switzerland was not active in that war, the war and many of the effects of war were hitting very strongly in that time. I'm thinking today of because I am recording this on the 15th anniversary of 9/11. It feels like this sermon speaks to us today. You could almost feel like 
Bart is preaching to us. So I'm going to do my very best to deliver the passage that Bart is preaching from and then deliver Bart's actual sermon. I will just be reading it. Uh, This is a translation from his original German. Uh, but I think you will find, if I can read it uh, as, as well as I hope I'm, I can for you today, that you will find this to be actually a, a very good, very challenging sermon that's very relevant a hundred years later, uh, maybe even more relevant today. And, and it really, I found it very moving. So I'm just going to get right into the sermon now. And this sermon comes from March 4th, 1917. The text is Mark chapter 10. Verses 46 through 52. They came to Jericho. As he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout and say, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. And now, the sermon. Dear friends, a blind beggar was sitting by the roadside. What should we think about this? Here we have, in only a few words, not only the sad fate of a man, but also the entire misery of humanity itself. Here we have, in all clarity and brevity, what life can make of us today, what it can make of me tomorrow, what it can make of you Life is the friend of the strong, the healthy, the rich, the intelligent. It pats us familiarly on the shoulder as long as we can travel with it happily and boldly on the good and broad road and be a little fresh with it too. Look how they tip their hats to you. How on all sides you are surrounded with warmth and friendliness. How important you are how much they need you, and how you can enjoy the sunshine of knowing why you are alive. Oh yes, life gladly plays with us in the sunshine as long as it likes to do so. But life is a treacherous and false friend. You never know when, in a moment, it might strike you to the ground and roll you around in the mud, if this so happens to suit its mood. Life loves change often sudden, yet often gradual change, in which a person slowly becomes aware that, as one might say, I'm done, it's over, I have nothing to live for. Yes, this same life that is the cheerful companion of the strong also untiringly plagues the weak. Why should you not think that you who are strong today will become weak tomorrow? A blind beggar was sitting by the roadside. Look at what life has made of this person? Why is he blind? Why is the sea of light that bathes us absent for him? Why is he punished and struck down with darkness? Is it due to some guilt of his own? Or of his parents, as in John 9, 2? Or of his grandparents, 
Has he been neglected by indifferent medical doctors? Has he been in a war? Life pays no attention to such questions. Whatever they answer, the misfortune is there. Too bad for you. Now look at this. And it throws this miserable man on the side of the road, as if saying, what good are you? Look how they all quickly pass you by. One has to pursue his business, another his passion, another is filled with care for one's family, another is deeply sunk in high, serious thought. All that has nothing for you. As if from afar you hear the happy, eager bustle of life passing you by, it doesn't need you who are only a blind beggar on the side of the road, it has cast you aside. And common sense whispers in your ear, it would be better to die than to have to live with nothing more to expect from life. What do you want to do? Weave baskets? Make paper roses? Become an organ grinder? Whatever you choose, it's nothing good and right, nothing whole and wholesome, nothing that could really make you happy and meaningfully fill your life. If one day you disappeared, no one would miss you. Meanwhile, you can beg. Yes, be a beggar among the healthy, the strong, the rich. Beg for a little attention, for a friendly thought about a poor man, for a little love, for a few crumbs from the rich table of life where all those others seat themselves so securely, so free of care. Above all, you can beg for a little money, The shallow side of life where you now reside is ruled by mammon. For here all thought circles around money, however little, and how could it be otherwise? Get what you can is the slogan on both sides of the divide. On the side of the strong there is trust in one's own abilities and skill. On the side of the other, on the side of the beggar, one must count on the good mood of those who are happily in possession of what the beggar does not have. But it is bitter, is it not, when, so to speak, the page is turned to the opposite side, and life forces a change, and one has to look in this face of King Mammon. The world looks remarkably different when seen in the darkness of the blind, or through the windows of a hospital, or asylum for the chronically ill, or through the bars of a jail, or through the gate that separates the yard of a mental hospital from the street outside or from the many, many back rooms and hovels of the poor. The world looks remarkably different to an older person who is without a job and wanders searching for one from town to town, or to a homeless family that has no choice but to apply for government welfare. It looks remarkably different to the invalid who is completely dependent on charity, or to the widow and the orphan whose husband and father has been sacrificed in a war for the fatherland. A blind beggar was sitting by the roadside. He has no choice but to accept his fate and the fact that he has been thrown off to the side of the road. He will do his best to be humble and thankful toward the pastor, the organizations that serve the poor, and the nice people who occasionally give a good word and a little help. But can he regard this world with anything but bitterness, hate, and despair? Yes, this world is this world not for him really a great suffering a terrible injustice an outrage if he could would he not cry out aloud against it would he not call down the righteous judgment of god against it if he still believed in god now who is right he as he sees the world 
or we, we secure, happy, healthy people as we see the world. We are naturally quick to say, oh, the world is not so dangerous. We have a thousand reasons to see the world as a good place to be. We have done a right good job of dealing with life. And for this reason, thought out in our own comfortable experience of life, the blind beggar and all those like him must be wrong. And yet, if we could only be at peace in what we say, if only there were not something in us that thinks he is right, something that says to us he sees the world as it is, he with his blind eyes understands the world better than we do with our seeing eyes. He no longer allows himself to be deceived. Life at bottom is suffering, injustice, outrage. And he knows it, but we not yet. And that is the difference. And yet at times we have noticed it by the bedside of an ill or dying person, at the scene of an accident, or when someone unexpectedly fell in sin and shame, or when we experience something of the horror of war, and we have sighed, what is human being? What is human being? Not just this one or that one. Not just the blind beggar of Jericho. Not just the cancer patient or the one who has lost everything. And not only the body that lies cold and motionless before us in the casket. No, not only these, but the question about what human being is. What we all are. Does life make fools of us all? Has it ever, even for one person, kept the promises it made? Does life have any consideration at all for us when it chooses to turn the wheel of fate so that what was up is now down? Does it not lie in wait for each of us with sin and care, sickness and old age? Has it not spread over the whole earth the gray, iron-clad net of war and its misery, its lies, its atrocities, its death? Is it not as if we hear it laugh at all of us, all who have fallen or are soon to fall into its traps? Why may it play cat and mouse with us? What allows it to betray and deceive, deceive us as it does? Oh, if we would only consider for a moment, we would have to say ourselves, He, the blind beggar of Jericho and all those like him, are clearly right with their bitterness their hate and their despair. And so, as it were, we place ourselves beside them and lift with them their accusation against the brutal inhumanity of human beings, against the curse of mammon, against the insanity of war, against the fate that pours sickness and care and death over us, against the injustice of life. And perhaps now we sigh with this blind beggar and cry out with him, that terrible protest against humanity and the world. And in this we are right, right, right in everything. But the wind carries our words away, they fade quickly. Nothing more is said. Deep silence is all around us, and all remains as it was. In the distance we hear the mocking laughter of life, which continues to make of us what it will. But now another passes the blind beggar of Jericho. He too is a human being, not an angel, not a demigod. He too is life's victim. How could it be otherwise? 
He too is about to be pushed by the world to the side of the road and to be thrown among the dead. He is not one of the strong, triumphing, and happy ones who always swim along the top of the world. He belongs neither to good society nor to those who climb up the social ladder with agility and guile. He has chosen a course that has no prospect of success. He has long since ruined his relationship to all the right people. He has already suffered and will have to suffer a great deal more. He has already had enough experiences with the great injustice of life, and infinitely more such experiences await him in the future. He comes from Galilee, his home, but he is done with Galilee, and Galilee is done with him. There he failed. His mother and brothers think he is an eccentric fool. The people of his hometown have run him out. Capernaum and the countryside on the Sea of Galilee have heard his call and yet heard nothing, have seen his deeds and yet done nothing. A small group of disciples around him, they have understood him so well that they argue among themselves about who among them is the greatest. In life, a great deal depends on that. He is following from place to place by a curious and excited crowd of all kinds of people. They will desert him and turn against him as soon as they recognize that he does not have luck on his side. That is what happens in life. And now he is on the way to Jerusalem. He has no illusions about what lies ahead. Jerusalem kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. There await the high priests and the scribes, the whole host of church boards, sessions, and pastors who gather in the temple and are keenly interested and not letting something like this spread. There awaits Pilate, the Roman authority, with his basic dictum, peace and quiet is the first duty of the citizen. There await not only church and state, but also the whole thrice holy system of society, supported and borne by the people who do not know what they do. There await the will and the power, if it must be, to erect a cross. It is also part of life, the way this man goes from Galilee to Jerusalem and who now comes to the place where the blind beggar of Jericho sits beside the road. One could discuss for a long time to which of these two life has dealt a worse fate. But this man is in a different relationship to life than the blind beggar. In fact, the whole world lies between them. Life has made of one of them something sad and miserable, a kind of nothing. The other has taken life into his hands and is making something of it. One is the sighing creature subjected to futility. The other is the Lamb of God who bears the sin of the world. How do we understand and describe this other who was in the suffering of Jesus? Oh, Jesus had already truly seen that misery of humanity in all its sad forms, the misery that was soon to come down on his head too. But in his eyes, it was not as it is in our eyes. The astonishing and sad thing we have in mind when we say, Ah, the world is like that. He sees it as something to be infinitely understood, penetrated through and through, and gotten to the bottom of. Life did not surprise him, as it ever again surprises us. Rather, he always understood it as it is. He spoke little about how it makes us fools, and never spoke a single word about things that cause so much fear, concern, and agitation in us.
such as war, for example. Only on occasion does he name things as they are, as when he speaks of the rule of worldly princes and the might of the powerful among them, or when he speaks of the fool who stores his treasures but is not rich toward God. A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho the opposite way from that taken by Jesus and fell among robbers. And so it is. That is the way it is in the world. That is what life does. Jesus knew the cause and was not surprised at the outcome. God is the cause. In the singular sense, God cannot be with human beings because human beings make their life without God. With God, they could rule over life, but now they are subjected to it. With God, truth would be in their existence, but now life swindles and disappoints them. With God, their way would be straight, and they would not stray from the path, but now they are subjected to life's evil vicissitudes. God is the key to life, but human beings have lost the key. What wonder that they now stand angrily before the many dark secrets of their existence. Jesus is not surprised at the suffering of the earth, nor is he surprised about what happens to him, because he sees through both and knows what is missing. Will he now say, one must resign to reality as it is? Will he preach to the blind beggar and the whole sighing creaturely world the old sermon about sacrifice and patience and contentment? No, that he did not do. He was kept from doing it, by what was in his conscience, deep respect for God, who will not leave humanity to itself, not let it wither in the shadows. Ever again such things are said of him, that he had compassion for the people, for they were like sheep without a shepherd, that he stood without fear before the scribes and Pharisees and threw in their faces. Woe to you, for you think you are serving God, yet you do so without God. That out of indignation about life, as it is, he cleaned the temple with a whip. That, at the tomb of Lazarus, he was greatly disturbed over the power of death. That he wanted to make his disciples active opponents of the evil spirits of this world. That he once compared himself with a strong person who attacks an armed man in his castle, overpowers him, takes away his armor, and distributes the plunder. No. Jesus was not the one to say, one must resign and accept the unavoidable. Rather, he puts the power of this life against the power of God. Against the power of the unjust judge, he puts the power of the pleading widow. He shows and gives again the key to human beings, the key to human beings that human beings had lost. He promises that life must not remain as it is, that none of the dark secrets of life may threaten and depress them indefinitely, that with God life shall be different. He calls out, God seeks you, you human beings in your misery, God whom you have lost. God comes to you before you do anything, and God has followed after you. God loves you in your sin and distress and will not leave you in it. Believe in God so life will no longer be able to make of you what it will. Believe in God and you will be the stronger one. Do not just accept life and by no means accept life meaninglessness but accept God who helps you. And with this message, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, yes, precisely there, 
not because he accepts the fact that the world is evil and will do evil to him, but in order to bring the kingdom of heaven into the world, in order to bring honor to God over and against the evil powers of life that oppose God in that city. In his passion, Jesus' way was not that of resignation, not that of the defeated, but of the defiant combatant who undauntedly carried forward his banner, the banner of God. Certainly, he did not do that by crying angrily into the wind about the misery and distress of humanity as we often want to do. He did not do it with scolding, accusations, and protests against the foolishness and evil of human beings, against the malice of fate and the insanity of existing social and economic conditions in the world. He did not do it with a great curse on life, which is something that many noble and significant persons in their distress have finally ended their lives with. He was kept from all that by one who lived in his heart, God who also does not curse life. The more the misery of humanity befell him, all the more peacefully did he let it all happen. The more violently lack of understanding and evil will turned against him, the less he resisted. The higher the troubled waves of life rose around him, the more naturally it seemed to him he would be covered over by them. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give life as a ransom for many. He wills to drink the bitter cup. He wills to be baptized with the hard and difficult baptism. It was not easy for him to fight for God in this way. He had to struggle with it, bleeding both in Gethsemane and on the cross. What did he do? He took and bore on himself the whole terrible burden of life, godless human life, its sin, its suffering, its death, in order that what human beings do not understand in his life might be understood in his death, namely, that God is master over all these sad powers of the world, powers that we are able only stupidly to accept or bitterly to curse, that God bears this burden of our life and us all with it, while we always fall down under the burden or helplessly try to get rid of it, that God finally is the victor over the old life and the creator of a new life, while we only know to take hold of the old life as it is and to curse it. That was what was new. The powerful inbreaking of the kingdom of God in what he did in Jerusalem, which was more powerful there than in his most beautiful words or most astonishing miracles. He let humanity's life of sin, its life of sadness and death, crash in on him from all sides in order to show, apparently in deepest weakness, but in truth in highest power, that God is stronger than anything and everything. Jesus suffered not stupidly and not in anger, but as the soldier of God standing at the most difficult and most exposed post and doing his duty against the evil enemy. We understand, do we not, that this was something different from the suffering of the blind man who sat on the roadside and begged. The blind man and all those like him, and we too, suffer and do not know why. We do not even notice the kind of war we are in, or that in this war we must go forward and do our duty, that we must bear it in order to overcome it, that we must overcome it in order to shine forth, and that we shine forth in order to help God in the world. Jesus understood life and knew where it failed, and that God wills not to leave it in his in its failure, but to make all things new, yet not without us, but with us. He himself bravely went 
with this new reality into the midst of the old world. He went with his life into death in order to work the death of death. That is what was different. But now something has happened between these two sufferers, the blind man and Jesus. It was not for nothing that the suffering Christ went past the blind man, for the blind man noticed something about the one that encountered him on the road. Look, he arises from his apathetic resignation to fate. Look, he forgets his bitter accusation against God and humanity. Look, he begins to understand from afar, and yet very clearly, God can help. God will help. God must be victorious. Jesus, you son of David, be merciful to me. Here it is already evident that Jesus has not traveled his difficult, lonely way in vain. Here the bridge is already built from the suffering world to the salvation that God has prepared. Here the blind man has already heard what Jesus, through his death in Jerusalem, willed to proclaim to all the world. God is stronger than anything and everything. What Jesus sought and willed to bring about through his death shines forth here already. Faith, faith in God, and therefore God's help can also shine forth. Here the way is now open that rises above suffering humanity. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. And that is the end of the sermon. It's a powerful sermon. I think it's just as strong today as it was then. A couple comments from William Willimon about this sermon. He tells us that the blind beggar by the roadside in this sermon becomes a symbol for the human condition. Um, he says that Bart um, admitted that, to be honest, when it comes to exegesis, no one can, of course, bring out the meaning of a text without, at the same time, adding something to it. Still, the biblical text used here is little more than an occasion for the preacher to ruminate on the human condition of modernity. Here we have in only a few words not only the sad fate of a man, but also the entire misery of human humanity itself. With that declaration, Bart sails into an exposition of the melancholy human situation. But, and this is not Wilmon's comment, this is me now. I find it amazing when he... He brings us into that sort of despair of the human condition, how he turns that around when he brings Jesus in and the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and how God faces humanity differently and sees humanity differently. And another comment by Willimon, Bart begins by mocking our false sense of security. Even life itself is a treacherous and false friend that deceives us about our true situation. And it's, it's interesting to me, again, this is not Willimon, this is me again. Um, it's just interesting to me the way he does that and the way he, he builds it up. And then when he brings Jesus in, um, he, he devastates us <laughs> in a good way with the fact that God is God. And God has um, not left us alone. And God is not willing to leave us as we are. Christ is the focus of the sermon. The preacher appeals for belief in Christ as the appropriate human response to Christ. Um, there's no interest in ministering to the modern skepticism about the miraculous that was happening in the time uh, when Bart was uh, a theologian. Uh, it's a debate that's still going on where people are 
more interested in a liberal theology that wants to discount everything. Bart wasn't interested in that in his sermons. He was proclaiming, um, he was proclaiming the kingdom of God here in 1917. What a beautiful sermon. I could talk some more about it, but I think I'm just going to let us sit with it and let us hear those words and be reminded about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and the humanity that is in Jesus that has not left us alone. Thank you for listening to Voices in My Head this week. I hope you've enjoyed this sermon by Carl Bart. I plan to bring some more in the coming days. Uh, think about it. Pray about it. Allow it to sink into your heart. I think it was a wonderful sermon, and it's a sermon that I think it preached today just as easily as it did in 1917. God bless you. Thank you for listening to Voices in My Head. Thank you for joining me here this week on the Voices in My Head podcast. I hope you'll visit me on my website at rickleyjames.com, follow me on Twitter at rickleyjames, like my artist page on Facebook at facebook.com slash rickleyjames, and keep up to date on what I'm writing at my author page on amazon.com. Make sure to follow my calendar on the website, and if you would like to have me come to your town to do a concert, a speaking engagement, or a book event, you can book me through my website by clicking on the link for Pair Booking Agency. That's P-A-R-E Booking. And finally, it would mean the world to me if you were to leave me a review of this podcast on iTunes. The more positive reviews that we receive, the more visible this podcast is on the internet. And now the benediction. May the God of peace, who raised Christ from the dead, strengthen your inner being for every good work. And may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest upon you and dwell within you this day and forevermore. Amen.